you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Those of you that might be wondering, are we in? We are, we are in the new house. Three days, we're in. In the, uh, in the barn that we had been staying in, which was a wonderful, wonderful place, uh, the kids slept in a loft area on mattresses, and Nancy and I slept on the, the couches down below. Uh, the couches had a slump in them in such a way that you only could sleep on one side. So for six months, I had been sleeping on this side. And the other night, two nights ago, while we had laid on our bed for the first time, I just had this, this serene, very paradise-like feeling when I turned and rolled to the other side. It was unbelievable. I go, that's, that's what it feels like. It was great. We are continuing this little mini-series on Jesus' main confession in this passage about building this church. And we've been looking at powerful truths that surround and circle that reality as we move into the new building era of this church. So those of you that are joining us or visiting with us, we're basically setting in place what we are believing God to do in and through this local body by looking at this passage together. Some of you have wondered, well, what happened to Revelation? We kind of pulled out. Did the rapture happen? We pulled ourselves out of the the book. Well, we're coming back to the book, and we'll get to 20 and 21 uh, probably in about several weeks after we hit a couple more themes here, okay? Now, Alex Kershaw has a book, and it's called The Longest Winter. Some of you might have read it or in the process of reading it. It describes a cold morning in 1944 when 18 men who were from a small U.S. Army intelligence platoon found themselves at the brunt of the frontal assault of the Battle of the Bulge when the German forces made their incredible counteroffensive attack. So these 18 men, this one platoon, found itself on a very strategic hill in the midst of this counterattack and this main assault of the German forces. Now, they were vastly outnumbered. It was a small platoon, 18 men, and they repulsed three German assaults and inflicted hundreds and hundreds of deaths on the German soldiers. And they held this particular hill. Well, at the end of the day, they ran out of ammunition. And at the end of the day, this became the most decorated platoon in World War II. Now, just three months before this longest day of their lives, they uh, were leaving Camp Maxi to head out to Europe. And as they were leaving Camp Maxi, they all described this very vivid picture of traveling by train through the United States and going town after town and having people line the train tracks as they would come through towns, waving to them, greeting them, shouts of encouragement to them. But there was one particular town in a small town in Ohio that really got all their attention. And at this particular town, the whole town came out and lined the tracks. And when they came by, the townspeople came running up to the train just to grasp and clasp their hands and was pushing food into the windows and pushing gifts into the windows. It was unlike any other part they had on their way out before they were shipped out to Europe. In fact, one soldier said... It was as if they knew where we were going in their hearts. In their hearts, they knew this, as we did, that many on the train would never return. Now, there are, there are many of us probably this morning that wonder if you're in a situation in which you might never return. 
There are many times in our life when the gates of darkness are so close to us, it seems like you might never return. So what do you do? What do you do when the gates of hell are close, are closing in? That's the topic before us this morning. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Simon, Bar-Jonah, and that just means Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Our Father, we thank you for a tremendous passage and we thank you for a solid promise here. We thank you that Jesus is the center of this passage and so clearly speaks hope, speaks promise, speaks grace, speaks help. To all of us who find ourselves close to the gates of hell. And so, Lord, this morning we all come in in various situations, shaping influences. We all come in with different spiritual states, including the preacher. And so, oh Lord, we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus, that he's enough for us. And we ask that even now you would do what this passage even talks about that we would be of the blessed because flesh and blood doesn't gain the knowledge of you, but you reveal it. So would you reveal the knowledge of you so that we might be helped? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the main idea of Matthew 16, 13 through 20, is Jesus' confession. It's a very solid promise. I will build my church. Several truths have been unpacked in this so far. The first one we looked at is that Jesus is the hero king of the church. Now, what does that mean? Remember the word Christ in the Greek? That's what it's translated. It's actually taken from the Hebrew word Messiah. And it has reference to a a David-like king, only better. A David-descending king, only greater. And so what we have here is a picture that Jesus is the hero king of the church is that he's the one that actually comes in and he removes all kingdoms. He removes all Goliaths that keep us from the land of the milk and honey. And that's why there's that little phrase, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. The moment that that Peter confesses Jesus is the hero king, what happened to him? The land of milk and honey was open to him. And that's the point that we looked at at the very beginning, that Jesus is the hero king. And in being the hero king, 
He brings us into the land of milk and honey, and he'll remove any obstacle that gets in the way that tries to prevent us from getting there. And we saw that the picture of David and Goliath was actually a picture of what the hero king would end up doing. Now, the second truth we looked at last week is Jesus is the reason we go to church. He's the reason we are the church. We be the church. He is the reason. And where did we find this? We'll recall that this is the first time the word church is actually used and all the Gospels are from the mouth of Jesus. It's used one more time and it's also in the Gospel of Matthew 18. So two times in all the Gospels from Jesus' lips, the church is only used. And here it's used for the first time wedged in a passage that is saturated with Jesus. Remember, the beginning of this passage begins with, who do people say that I am? It ends with, don't tell anybody who I am. And in the center is the confession of who he is, the hero king. Remember that? And so we see in this passage that Jesus is the reason of the church. The church is never to move off Jesus. It's not Jesus and then on to the Holy Spirit. It's not Jesus for the unbeliever and now some other book that you find in a Christian bookstore that's for the believer. It's Jesus in the beginning, it's Jesus in the center, and it's Jesus in the end. He is the vision, He is the method, He is everything. And He alone is the power from God to actually advance and move His church. Okay. Now, we never move off Jesus, and we saw that one other point we want to emphasize is that true humility is realizing this. True humility is not some virtue, as we saw Calvin talked about. It's not a virtue to be pursued. It's the deep realization that Jesus is everything. It's the deep realization that we are nothing without Jesus. Okay? Now, that's where we, got, we saw in this passage. Remember, everybody's trying to figure out who Jesus is, and they're getting the wrong answer. Well, that's the point, is again, that only God can reveal Jesus to us. And that's a very humbling thing in this passage. Again, only God can reveal him, and that keeps us dependent ultimately on Jesus. So now we're ready. We're going to wrap up our time in this passage. We're going to look at what do you do when the gates of hell are close? What do you do when the gates of hell are closing in? Here's the answer. There's two answers. We're going to look at the first one now and then unpack it. It's fix your focus. When the gates of hell are closing in, we need to fix our focus is what needs to take place. There's a man who approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon. I can fully identify with this. He asked a boy in the dugout the score of the game. The little boy popped out and says, 18 to nothing, and we're losing. And the man turned to the little boy and says, boy, you must be really discouraged. And the boy shot back at him like this really puzzled look. He says, why? We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. Is fixing your focus, is fixing your focus the power of positive thinking? Is that what it is? Is fixing your, your focus the power of happy thoughts? Is that what it is? Is that what we're talking about? It's like when the gates of hell are closing in on you. You say to yourself very positively and with a smile on your face and as much as you can put it in your heart, the gates of hell are not closing in on me. The gates of hell are not closing in on me. The gates of hell are not closing in on me. And you say it, and you say it till you start getting more positive thoughts and more positive movements in your inner man or your inner person. 
until all the, the bad thoughts and thinking goes out. Is that what fixing your focus is all about? Now, the problem with this approach is, is that while you're saying this, the gates of hell are, are not closing in, the death of your loved one did happen. While you're saying to yourself happy thoughts and happy thinking and positive stuff about self-esteem and positive stuff about how much God loves you and positive stuff about the gates of hell are not closing in, the doctor does and did give you a report. Your struggle with your sin and your failure in that sin did happen. The effect of your sin on that person did happen. The persecution and hostility that confronts you because of your faith in Christ, it did happen. Right? And there's a hundred other things that did happen. And positive thinking is not going to take it away. No matter how happy your thoughts are. So positive thinking, and again, the problem with this, I think, is is that while you're mumbling your positive thinking, you can hear the cries behind the gates of hell. And you can smell the despair behind the gates of hell. And you can feel the darkness behind the gates of hell. And you can see those gates. So positive thinking is not what it means to fix your focus. What it means is transformed thinking. That's what happened to Peter. I mean, let's look at the passage again. In 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter had a change or a new life or a scene with new eyes take place in this thinking. It's a transformed thinking that took place in Peter. It's like this. Transformed thinking is like having these redwoods of truth planted in the soul of your mind. And while these high-velocity winds of error and lies are blowing by you, trying to blow through your life and try to disengage your mind from what's true, and you have these incredible gusts and storms of feelings that are everywhere. I mean, interpretations of reality that are just, if you analyze them on a good day, you say, they're irrational. But here, they seem to be so true. So you have storms blowing. You have the thunder and lightning of the gates of hell and hell's fury blowing hard against you. High-velocity winds. And these deep redwoods of truth are anchored in your mind and they don't move. And because they don't move, your mind and your heart and your soul find shelter, finds refuge, finds strength, and actually finds nourishment in these redwoods of truths that are anchored in your mind. Now that's transformed thinking. What is transformed thinking? What is the transformed thinking in this passage that needs to take place in us? What is it? So we're looking at what needs to happen when the gates of hell are closing in or when you feel like you can reach out and touch the cold, steely gates of the other world 
and its evil and its cruelty and all that happens with that reality, you feel it's close. Well, what do you do? You've got to fix your focus. Now, fixing our focus is not positive thinking. Fixing our focus is transformed thinking. Well, what particular transforming truths are we supposed to see take place in our life? Well, here's the first one. The first answer is found in the word gates in verse 18. If you look at the scripture in verse 18, gates, it's very interesting. The most common reading of this is that the church is under attack, isn't it? The most common reading of this passage is that the church, the church that's organized and the church that's organic is under attack. The common interpretation and the way we naturally intuitively read this passage is that the priesthood of all believers, each and every one of us, and then the office of ministry, the reality of those that have been set aside for ministry, are under attack. The emphasis is that the the body as a whole, the body of Christ, and the church as arms and ears and noses and eyes is under attack. That's the most common notion of this. But what if, what if it's not the church that's under attack, but what if the gates of hell are under attack? Now that would transform our thinking, wouldn't it? New Testament scholar Leon Morris, he said this, that the gates are defensive structures, not offensive weapons. Isn't that interesting? So the picture here of the gates of hell is that the gates of hell are not this offensive, like, battering ram. But the gates of hell are actually the fortification, the stronghold, the walls, the protective walls around the city or the the reality of hell. Do you see what's happening here? The picture here is that Jesus is standing before the defensive structures of the gates of hell. That's the picture here. So we have Jesus, hell, which is in the Hebrew and in the ancient Near East at that time called Hades. It's called the underworld. It's the place of the dead. It's the place in which no one returns. It's the place of utter misery, utter wickedness, utter evil, utter soul pollution and corruption. It's the place of complete darkness and devastation and desperation and despair. Complete. It has strong steeled gates that do not let anyone out. And they're locked. And Jesus stands before the gates of hell and he says, my kingdom will come. I will build my church. And I'm on the offensive, not the defensive. So the transformed thinking that we need to start thinking about in this passage is that we, the church, are not on the defensive. We're actually on the offensive. Jesus will build his church. Hell is on the defensive. Okay? There's two other truths that need to transform our thinking here and they they follow out of this reality that the church is not on the defensive but on the offensive and this is this we need to we need to realize we do not live in a lovely world we need to realize that we live we tend to think that we're in a garden that's full of colors we're in a garden that's full of beauty and bounty we're in a garden that's full of provision and protection and security a garden in which there's No darkness, there's no famine, there's no fire, there's no scorched earth. We tend to think that we are in a garden in which all our circumstances happen the way they should. Computers don't crash and 
and moving things don't break and all that kind of stuff. Everything's perfect. We tend to think that way. And we think that we have a garden in our heart. We think that there's a garden in our relationships. We think that we have a garden in our calling and the way we go about our work that God's called us to do. We think we have a garden in the church. And we think we have a garden in the community and the culture. That's what we think. And then we think that hell is this fire and this famine that's coming to the garden to scorch it and turn it into a desert. That's the way we think and live our lives today. And we are utterly shocked when it happens. But here's the truth that needs to transform our thinking. We already live in the desert. We're in the desert, not the garden. Okay? And because of Jesus, the garden's coming. And it's partly realized as he breaks into our life now and rescues those behind the gates of hell. But the full realization and the full enjoyment and the full reality of the paradise of God and the garden of God is yet to be. So imagine what getting your head and your heart around this kind of transforming thinking, planting this redwood of truth and anchor it in your mind what it would do to you. First, what it might do to you, what it might mean is you're not surprised when you suffer. You know you live in the desert. And you're not surprised when people sin against you. You know you live in the desert and so do they. And I think what happens when we begin to realize that we're not surprised, what we can do is let our pain push us to the person. Because if we're thinking we're still in the garden and we're shocked at the fire and famine that's seeking to scorch the earth and we're shocked that this is happening, we are more consumed by our wrong circumstances and the bad news we got from the doctor and the conflict we have in the relationship and we disintegrate instead of being pushed to the person, the one who builds this church. And so we need to not only let our pain push us to the person, we need to let our pain point us forward to paradise and to the garden. It's still awaiting us. And so what happens here is hope generates in you now. And when you experience pain and you experience the closeness of the gates of hell and you experience the realities of this present evil age, it it pushes you to the person and it points you forward to ultimate paradise. And you anchor yourself in hope then. Okay? Now, this also means that the struggle and tension and fighting with your sin right now in this life is a good thing. There's a desert in you. And there's a desert in me. And that means it's a good thing to be struggling and fighting and being at war with the sin within you. And so that means we're to live a life that's of confession. It's not a one-time confession and then... You never confess your sins for the rest of your life. That's why, again, in the cycle of our worship, we do it every Sunday. But that's also to put a liturgy in your own personal life that it's a daily reality that you recognize you have a desert in your own heart. And you recognize the reality that you need to confess that desert and confess the particulars that come out of that desert to the Lord and to other people. And then there's a repentance of turning from that and trusting in the goodness of the Lord. This should characterize people that live in the desert. 
And it should transform us in such a way that that's the way we should live. And then those of us that are at peace with our sin, we need to realize that we're either thinking we've got our sin licked or we're giving into it and giving over to our sin and we create this false peace. And that's what the scriptures will say. And then those of us that are using rules, if we're using our rules to hide behind in order to try to keep the struggle with sin at bay, we need to get rid of our rules and turn again back to Jesus. I think what many of us do, particularly in in American culture, in American church culture, is that we create rules and systems that try to keep us from the struggle and the fighting against sin. And we actually have this incredible deception take place in us. We think that when we're at peace with our sin, we're actually spiritually mature. And we actually think we're growing in grace if we get more peace and less struggle and less fight. And we actually think that the garden is now and there's no longer any sin in us. And we'll look for any type of teaching and any type of conference and any type of speaker that will help us alleviate the struggle. So that we feel like we're living above the struggle. With sin. But the Bible has a very gutsy, grace, in the mess of life look. And it says, Your heart's a desert. And yes, there are beautiful things, beautiful parts of the garden that partly get realized in your life. But your reality in the Christian life is to be at war with your sin. It's not to give into it and over to it, and it's not to create a false peace as if you can try to live. Over it. Okay? It's those that begin to have a gutsy grace and actually find the Savior in the midst of the desert in their own life and strife, strife and struggle and fight against their sin. They're the ones that people run to when the storms happen. Those of us that hang on to our rules, you will not be the ones that people will go to because a rule isn't going to help them. A how-to is not going to help them. Jesus will help them. Okay? All right, the last truth here that should transform our thinking is that our thinking should be transformed about ministry, the way we go about ministry, as individuals and as a church. This means we need to go on the offensive. If the church is not on the defensive, but the church is actually on the offensive, and if Jesus is not on the defensive, but Jesus is on the offensive, we need to be on the offensive. And that means we need to be bold, and that means we need to believe God to do good things. We need to believe God to work in our lives. We need to believe God to work in our families. And we need to ask God and seek God for opportunities to open the door for the gospel to go forward. And we actually need to consider the, most like, the least likeliest of places that it might happen. The least likeliest. In other words, you go to places and you think, that person or those group of people, it could never happen. And you know what I say? I say go to them and maybe watch it happen. I think we need to start rethinking about what it actually looks like for who comes into the kingdom. Okay? And I think what this happens is that we get bold and we get more outward facing. And that means that we, that we don't circle the wagons and we don't have a holy huddle. That to actually circle the wagons and to have a holy huddle in this world is being disobedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because if Jesus is on the offensive and he's crashing and breaking through the gates of hell, if a church decides to circle the gates and go on the defensive instead of the offensive, then it will look like one of the churches that we saw in Revelation Well, Jesus is saying, get going, you're my witness, get going. We're on the offensive, remember, get going, we're not on the defensive. And the warning was to those churches, if you don't, I'm going to take, take the light out of your lampstand. And you'll be left to your inner holy huddle. Arguing over doctrine, arguing over personality, arguing over rules and regulations, and arguing over a bunch of things. Okay, But I think what we need to do is have a, a transformation take place in our thinking about ministry that now we're, we're outward facing people and we're bold people in ministering to other people. And I think the other thing that this means is that we do this with compassion and we do this with grace. It's not like that particular person you come up to when you're ministering to people and you think, you know, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? You're thinking inside your heart. You never say it to the person. I hope you don't. But you're talking or you're ministering to somebody. And inside your heart, you know that. I've done it. You know that. You've had conversations with people. And while you're talking to them, you're thinking, what is wrong with you? Don't you get this? I just gave you the best explanation of the gospel I have ever given in my life. In fact, that illustration was perfectly timed. Did you get that, that way I used that word on top of the other word? They actually rhymed? Didn't you get it? <laughs> you know, that's what we start thinking inside. We think that way. Why don't you get it? What's wrong with you? But if we really recognize what 17 says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. You are not only bold because God's the one that breaks into our lives and he's at work for his glory in people's lives, but you're extremely compassionate and you're extremely gracious because you know it takes an act of God for them to see. And it's not about you, the presenter. And it's not because you've got more intelligence. And it's not because you've been... You've got some island of morality in you that you were able to exercise so that you could self-save yourself. But it's about God graciously breaking into someone's life. You have compassion. And you are bold. And it's an incredible mix of compassion and courage marrying together. Okay? All right. What do you do when the gates of hell are close to you? You've got to fix your focus. And it's not positive thinking, it's transformed thinking. First, hell's on the defensive, not the church. Second, life is a desert now with a garden coming later. Third, ministry boldness and compassion really does matter now. The last is this, and I'm going to end with it. David McCullough in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, 1776. I mean, who has not read it yet? You're un-American, Neil. You've got to read the book, 1776. Teasing, he's got a lot more other things to read. 1776, well, in it, what McCullough does, he comes across a letter, one of Washington's letters. I haven't seen it. I haven't read a lot of Washington. Those of you who are history buffs might be able to tell me. But he took this one portion of this one letter and included it in his book because he thought it was so key to understanding 
the character of this great man. It gave you a window into his character and what he was really like. I think unlike any other things, it was just a a one sentence phrase that was recorded in a letter. I don't even it didn't mention even in the research who it was written to. But it gives you a tremendous picture into who he was. This is the sentence. I heard bullets whistle and believe me, there's something charming in the sound. Now, some of us think that's a false bravado. But you know what McCullough was doing for us to get a a picture of the character of this man? This is what he said. George Washington had found he was one of those rare few who under fire were without fear. Do you want to be like that? You need to fix your focus if you want to be like that. And you need to fix your focus on the one who stands without fear at the gates of hell and says, my kingdom has come. I will build my church. And I will prevail. And so will all who fix their focus on me. Amen.